0: Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS member podcast where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. and thank you for listening to the DNS podcast. This episode is part of a limited series where we explore diversity in healthcare. Our guest today is registered nurse, Anna Marie Valdez. Dr. Valdez is a professor of nursing at Sonoma State University and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Emergency Nursing. She is currently serving as co-chair of the Emergency Nurses Association Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, committee and has also served as a subject matter expert on the inaugural National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing, and was a contributing author of the commission's foundational paper on racism in nursing. She is currently serving as an independent commissioner. Dr. Valdez has presented nationally on anti-racism, bias, environmental justice, health equity, and DEI. She has taught thousands of nurses and other healthcare professionals about providing inclusive, Unbiased, and Equitable Care. Her research and publications include emergency nursing, DEI, bias, anti-racism in nursing, and health equity. Dr. Valdez was selected as one of 20 nurse leaders advocating for health equity to follow on social media. Well, Dr. Valdez, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'd like to start by hearing more about your role
0: as co-chair of the Emergency Nurse Association DEI committee.
1: Um, I've had the pleasure of being the DEI chair and this year the co-chair for three years. First two years, I was the chair, and this year I'm co-chairing with my lovely colleague, Hershop Davis, who is you know, doing the transition um, of taking over the chair next year. Um, And it's been wonderful. We have a small DEI committee of about 10 people from a bunch of different positionalities. And for the last three years, you know, we started, it's an inaugural committee. So we started with assessments and doing some education, but we've made a lot of progress and hope to have our um, final roadmap for how we're gonna address uh, DEI and justice and anti-racism over the next couple of years and fold it into our strategic plan. So it's been really a wonderful experience.
0: We heard in your bio that you have a focus on anti-racism specifically in the, in the field of nursing. So can you define systemic racism
1: for us and how it does impact our nurse colleagues? I appreciate that you're asking me about systemic racism, because in nursing, when we think about racism, and this may be true for um, people who work in the nutrition and dietitian area, we think about our relationship with patient care and healthcare. care as kind of a dyadic relationship, right? It's me and the patient. Um, and so oftentimes, I think nurses are hesitant to accept that racism exists. Exec- exist because in that relationship that they have with their patients, they're not, you know, being actively racist and so it's hard for them to conceptualize racism and the way in which it's harming people and the effect that it has on health outcomes. Um, And so I try to do a lot of teaching about the different types of racism, one of which being systemic. And um, that is something that encompasses all of the aspects of racism and how it's embedded in our culture and into our systems. Um, And oftentimes people don't necessarily recognize it because it may be in kind of diffuse or subtle ways, or it may be that they don't recognize it because it just doesn't happen to them. And so it is all those things, it is the generations of laws, um, the generation of having been generations of having been denied rights, for example, denied the opportunity to develop inter- intergenerational wealth. Um, it's the aspects of even going back to like the 1930s when um, they were redlining people for decades, um, redlining areas and prohibiting people from being able to buy houses even if they were more than capable of doing that. And you know the, the lack of investment in those communities Um, If you're not familiar with redlining, I think it's a good example for systemic racism. So, you know, in the early 1930s, with kind of a housing boom and the American dream, um, uh, most of the funding for homes was done nationally. And they came up with a system by which to determine who gets loans and who does not get loans and, and how to develop communities. So there was like this A to D Um, grading system. And we call it red lighting because D was lined in red. So like the the A, the green, those were um, highly influential areas with people who had wealth that were considered low risk for loans. And then it kind of graduated down to D, which was the red line. And those were considered high risk for loans, poor areas, um, hazardous areas, whether or not that was true. And that continued for several decades, and with the civil rights movement and changes in lending, um, those rules were eradicated, although we still see unfair lending practices now. so. By nature of doing that, we isolated people to certain communities that were under-resourced. And we did not put any effort into um, developing those areas. You don't see parks, walking spaces, trees to protect from heat and climate change, um, clean air, all the things that many of us enjoy in our lives. I have a park right down the street from me, for example, with a whole walking route. And so not only were those communities denied loans and the opportunity to purchase homes, even if they were more than capable of doing that, but also they didn't have any investment put in, weren't developing nice schools and libraries and those kind of things. And additionally, because it was labeled as high risk, they also funneled higher risk um, companies into those areas. So oil refineries, um, companies that have a lot of... Um, that contribute to poor air quality, for example. And so, when you look at that, and you look at people who have been marginalized or segregated to areas, and they don't have access to the same things, you know, those people who were living in redlined areas, because we fund elementary school through um, through our homeowners tax, those schools were underfunded compared to others. So, when we look at social determinants of health, for example. All of those things affect the social determinants of health and therefore the health outcomes of people. So those history over the last several hundred years of laws and processes continue now. You know, you might say, well, we don't redline anymore even though there's still lending practices that are very concerning, we don't do that anymore. So it's not really a problem, but people are still affected. Generations have been affected. So it's, you know, it's laws we look at right now, um, laws being enacted to forbid the the teaching of Black history, um, forbid any conversations about anti-racism or DEI, for example. Those are all examples of systemic racism. It's not me doing something to you. Um, it is all of the things that happen, all the laws, all the processes that advantage some populations over other populations um, and result in people not being able to um, have access and choices for the same thing um, they would if they were not racialized as non-white.
0: So in many ways, systemic racism could be a barrier to an entry into the field of healthcare whether it's dietetics nursing pharmacy what have you if it's compounded over years and years that could be preventing certain individuals from you know achieving those educational milestones and entering the field
1: Absolutely. So in nursing, we've been talking for more than 30 years, as long as I've been a nurse, about how important it is for us to have a diverse workforce. We know from the evidence that patient outcomes are better. And also as nurses, we would be enriched by having um, diversity within our professional and being profession, being able to learn from each other. And so even though we have prioritized it, said it was important, nothing has really changed. Nursing, depending on what stats you look at, is somewhere between 75 and 85% cisgender, white, heterosexual females. Um, and though we've said we welcome diversity, that hasn't produced any change. And I often say to nurses, you can't just put up a welcome sign and think that that's gonna change the issues that cause us to have a really homogenous profession. Um, So, it's a number of things. So, with systemic racism, exactly what you're saying, there are all these variables. It can affect your academic opportunities, how well um, your academic foundation was in that first 12 years, your ability to get into college, Um, and then we also have institutional racism. So, for example, if you get into college, Um, Like we know that some of the prerequisites for nursing, particularly I would focus on anatomy, have very high DFW. So, um, you know, 50 to 60% of those students in that class are not graduating. They're not completing that course. And so then that counts against them when they don't pass a a key prerequisite and they either have to take it over or they decide that they're not gonna pursue nursing. Um, And the students who are completing that coursework. Doing all of those prerequisites tend to be well-resourced students. So people who maybe don't have to work where they're taking those prerequisites or they can afford tutoring or they don't need financial aid so they can take a lower um, load of courses so that they can really focus energy. Whereas people who don't have those same advantages are going to be more likely to not be able to complete the prerequisites or because of grades not be competitive and then assuming that you get past all of that right your early education the barriers um in college when you go to apply for nursing school we still have policies for admission that really advantage one group over the other and it advantages people who are highly resourced because we make those decisions based on gpa science grades, standardized test um, values, all of which we know um, disadvantage certain populations of students. And so we can't be surprised when we look at the statistics and see that we still have a significant lack of diversity because that welcome sign is not gonna do it. We have to deal with all of those other barriers that prohibit people or exclude people from being able to participate.
0: What strategies have been deployed to enhance the diversity in nursing?
1: I think what we have largely seen are position statements, which are great, but they're kind of performative if you don't have anything else in place. Many schools have done outreach, going to middle schools or high schools and introducing nursing, especially in um, populations that are underrepresented in nursing. Um, And that's great because it does, give young people the idea that they could be a nurse, especially when we can bring nurses who are representative of them that look like them or share cultural or life experiences with them so that they they feel like, oh, I, I could do that, right? And I think that's where we focused a lot of our energy and it hasn't bared out very well in terms of increasing our diversity. Um, One of the things that nursing is focusing on now is holistic admission review. So many schools are looking to change their admission criteria so that it does not um, disadvantage certain students and it's more equitable. Um, And that's based on an EAM model that looks at E for experience. And then A for attributes, and that really means that the qualities and attributes that students have that align with the school's mission and vision. Um, And then the M for metrics. And the goal is that each of those three categories, when you're making up points or the criteria for admission, are equalized. Right. So experience matters as much as your GPA and those other metrics or your attributes, your ability to be aligned with our mission and vision in the school and in nursing. Um, And I'm hoping that will be effective. Um, We're still kind of early in the process. So there's not a lot of schools who have been doing it for a long time where we have good data about that. But ultimately, I think um, not just in nursing, but in healthcare in general, we have to come together and start advocating for um, equity prior to getting into college, right? Um, So that those students who have been disadvantaged have opportunities um, that help them to kind of even the playing field. And I think that's a part of the systemic racism, right? Those are the things that we need to be involved in doing. Um, And making sure that that, you know, there is diversity in the people who have experiences that allow them to be able to enter nursing.
0: Another hot topic in the, the DEI world is health equity and health equality. So can you help us understand the difference
1: between the two? Sure. So I don't use the term health equality at all, um, because it's not effective. So when you think about equality, that means everybody gets the same. So if like for you and I, if we were both working in the same job with the same experience, we should be paid the same amount. And in healthcare, when you apply equality, what it means is everybody gets the same thing. But everybody getting the same thing doesn't necessarily result in positive health outcomes. And I just talked to my class about this. So I'll share the example I gave them. And so I'm an emergency nurse by background. And so if I had two patients come in that I was taking care of that were in diabetic ketoacidosis. And one of them was a 60-year-old person who was unhoused because they lost their job, who didn't have insurance and was not able to pay for their insulin. And so they were rationing it and and ended up in DKA. And the other was a six-year-old child who has new onset diabetes. We don't want to give those two people the same care right? If we did give them the same care, one would do well and one would not because it would be catered to the needs of a specific person, right? So we can't look at health care and say, we're going to do the same thing for everybody because we're not all the same and we don't have the same needs. And I often say to nurses when they say, I treat everybody the same. No, we don't. And if you're honest with our- ourselves, we know that we don't. I've cared cared for serial murderers who were on death row. I did not treat them the same way as I do somebody who fell and broke their hip and who's alone, whose hand I might hold and sit next to, right? So it doesn't mean I don't provide the standard of care, but we don't treat everybody the same. And I would argue that we must not treat everybody the same. We have to treat people as individuals and make sure that we're providing culturally informed care and understanding what their goals are and what resources they have so that we can co-create a treatment plan that's going to be effective for that person. The treatment plan that you would co-create with those two DKA patients is completely different. Health equity, on the other side, focuses on outcomes. right? So the goal is that Um, people would have fair and just access to the healthcare and resources that they need to have optimal wellness, uh, you know, to the best of their capability. And if you had two similar people like those two DKA patients, that they would both have positive outcomes, right? So that's health equity in terms of Addressing the inequities, the person who is unhoused, who doesn't have a place to store insulin, doesn't have insurance, needs some different things and different resources in order to have a positive outcome, just like the six-year-old. So it's really, for me, the difference between um, what care we provide and what the ultimate outcome is in terms of um, their access to health and to positive you know, positive health promotion and optimal wellness.
0: So as healthcare professionals, when we we get it right with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion, where the care we provide is inclusive, it's unbiased, and it is equitable, how does that translate into better outcomes for the patient?
1: You know, I think we all have biases. We have explicit and implicit biases, and when we're able to control our biases, and um, really focus on the standard of care, right? This is what is expected for treating somebody with this condition, um, and we're going to make sure we adhere to evidence-based care, and we're going to treat people and see them in their full humanity and treat people with kindness, and we're not going to communicate bias by giving reports to somebody else and sharing negative impressions that are not relevant to the health, for example, Um, when we are doing that, when we are seeing each person in their full humanity, as somebody who is um, worthy of the best possible care, um, we will have a much healthier and a a, a much more thriving society in general. Um, I have one of the things that I've learned from scholars in this area is that racism and oppression and bias harms us all. We may not see necessarily the way it harms us all, but when we are providing Um, and equitable care, then you end up having people with serious chronic illnesses who require a lot of care and there's a lot of cost and resources that are tied there. So when we provide equitable care, we have better outcomes as a society, we have better work productivity, we have better opportunities for people to thrive, but all of that matters. Um, But also for me as a nurse, I know that I am respecting and honoring the individual and treating them and preserving their dignity and providing care in a way that feels comfortable to them. Um, And so I think when we do that, you know, part of what we need is empathy, right? We need to be able to look at other people and be able to see what is happening from their lens. And I think as we develop that, as we get in tune with our bias, as we get in tune with perspective taking and understanding other people's experiences, I think we'll just be a much healthier society, not only in terms of health outcomes, um, you know, our mental health, our um, our social experiences, the way we interact with each other. I think um, when we can make that shift, it's not just gonna affect health outcomes. It's not just gonna affect the cost of delivering health care or the overall where we rank in terms of health care, but it builds a better society. And frankly, we'll also have people who, are able to be seen and treated earlier and maybe not develop serious consequences because when you experience bias, you don't want to go there. So I know a lot of people who have been racialized as non-white or maybe are transgender or non-binary, LGBTQ, whatever the population is that has been historically um, marginalized in healthcare, They have adverse experiences. And then what happens is you don't want to go. You will wait till the last minute till you feel like you're dying. You don't want to go get preventative care because it's a harmful experience, right? So when we can have people feel... Um, a sense of trust, believe that the people who are caring for them have their best interests in mind, are, are wanting to work collaboratively with them to create a plan of care. Um, when you have that, where people feel um, valued and dignified, they want to seek care. And, and we could prevent a lot of really serious chronic illnesses if we approached our work from that Lens, And I think that's really important for people who are dealing with nutritional um, services and dietary um, guidance and teaching and planning that the same is true, right? If we're disrespectful or we don't honor somebody's humanity, they don't want to listen to us right are they going to make the dietary changes they need if it's being presented in a judgmental way if it's not respecting what their wishes are what their cultural values and experiences are they're going to it's going to be a failed opportunity right and so when we see people's individuals and we engage them and understand them as individuals and include them um, we can, like, I think that's where the magic happens. We could do so much to really create a healthier um, society.
0: I think what you're describing is really the root of a lot of problems that healthcare entities face, where we have patients who they are, as you said, delaying care instead of going to a primary care physician or a dietitian for routine wellness. They are waiting until they're very ill and they have to use the emergency department. And right. you know, any healthcare administrator will tell you that's like one of the highest cost of care areas in the facility. And we need to divert people to more appropriate, you know, more appropriate care settings at more appropriate times. Not that anyone who needs emergency care would be denied care, uh, but we want to get to those people and help them before they, you know, before they need emergency services.
1: Right, and when we talk about systemic racism or even just systemic oppression, um, those things that I talked about, the educational opportunities, the experiences, the environment, the access to health insurance, all affect that, right? Um, As an emergency nurse, we wanna have people who don't have emergent needs being served in other areas. But the reality is for most of those people who are utilizing the emergency department, They're not making bad choices and coming to us. That is their only choice. If you have Medi-Cal or Medicaid in this country, it is very hard to find a doctor. It is certainly very hard to find a high-quality doctor, not to say that other doctors who are providing medical services by any stretch, my doctor does, and she's a phenomenal clinician, but it's limited. There are small groups of people trying to get... Um, referrals to specialists could take forever. Trying to be able to get access to medicine that's not being covered, for example, or even having copays, even people who have um, insurance that's quality, but they're working so hard and they're working against poverty that they have insurance, but they can't pay the copay or pay um, for the medicine that they need. Um, a lot of people who come in after hours, it's because they have jobs that they can't take any time off. And so the only opportunity if they're sick or they need care is to come in after their work hours. So there's a lot of variables there um, that we have to address, but we tend in healthcare to kind of use a blame and shame narrative. Like they don't belong here, we need to educate them, they should be someplace else. Um, But really, don't often ask, is there really someplace else? So what do we do about that as healthcare providers, right? I want emergency departments to be for emergencies so I can give the best quality care to those folks. But in order to do that, we have to stop being the safety net, which means we have to have other resources in place. Um, And, you know, like we saw this with um, Obamacare, Um, you know, there were many states that chose not to expand Medi-Cal and leave many people who are underinsured. And so you might think, well, you know, folks who say, well, you know, I work really hard. I, 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 Other people need to work hard. I don't want my taxes paying for that. But the reality is you're paying more taxes for that because now because they can't get preventative care, now because they can't be seen early in a disease process, we're paying tons of money. Um, in the emergency department and hospitalizing people and caring for people for long-term with chronic illnesses. So I think as a society, regardless of your political views, we have to start thinking upstream and we have to start taking actions um, so that we have a a stronger society and people who are healthier and able to thrive. Um, And because it's the right thing to do. Every human deserves to have respectful care. To me, um, healthcare is a basic human right that everybody should be entitled to um, regardless of what their situation is. As healthcare professionals, what
0: can we do to address the fears or the negative perceptions that may lead to a delay in seeking medical care? So aside from some of the system issues of having you know having a place to go but let's say for the situation where an individual does have access to care but they're they're still not utilizing it what can we do to
1: help you know i think we have to start by looking at ourselves and um, making sure that we are providing optimal care and examining our own biases and um, integrating personal processes for how we interrogate whether or not bias is affecting care. So first of all, we have to like clean ourselves up. We have to make sure that we are prepared and interested in investing and learning and growing to, um, you know, to spell stereotypes and false biological beliefs um, and things that may be affecting the care that we provide. Um, I also think as healthcare providers, we need some wellness ourselves because it is much harder to provide dignified, respectful, um, compassionate care when we are completely burned out, right? So there are some, I think, some structural things there as well. Um, we need leaders within healthcare to um, not just put this work forward and support this work, but to really embrace it, right, for themselves first and then. Um, share that and um, develop standards and expectations. And so I think first and foremost, we do some learning and unlearning, examine the stereotypes that we have learned um, and and implicitly care and evaluate how they affect care. And once we're in a place where we know we're not providing um, biased care or at least we're, we're mindful about checking in to make sure that we're not providing biased care, Um, then we have to build trust. And you build trust by providing compassionate, dignified, and unbiased care. And having, um, you know, having human conversations. People know if you care about them. Everybody knows that, right? And so if you come in to provide care into an office or whatever space with somebody and you don't care, about them and you're not invested in them, they know that, right? So we have to um we have to actually care and be genuine and present and that care in order to build trust. Um, and I think then have a, a track record. Um, so you know those are things I think we can do individually, I think institutionally at hospitals and other organizations. Having a clear um, statement that's built into your strategic plan about how you're going to ensure that everybody receives unbiased care and that you're going to address the needs of um, the entire population you serve. I also think, um, so for me, in my anti-racist work, I use a 4A model that I came up with. Um, The first A is awareness. And so that phase and that process should be you learning. Right. That's unlearning stereotypes. That's exploring your biases. Um, you know, really some reflexivity and self-assessment. Um, and then you move into the next A, which is assessment. So individually, that is assessing where I need to learn and grow. For example, I, I focus a lot on anti-racism. It is um, congruent with my lived experience, but I also care about all of humanity. And so I did not have a good understanding of transgender healthcare needs, how to provide gender-affirming um, gender care, um, what kinds of terminology works, etc. Ex- acceptable and respectable. Um, And so that was an area where I identified in my own assessment that I needed to do some work, I needed to do some learning. And um, when you do that, we really need to learn from people who have lived experience and true expertise in that area, right? So you do an assessment that can be done institutionally, organizationally, it can be looking at policies, processes. Um, And then the next part is action, and that means that we take meaningful action. So as an individual, if in your action plan from your assessment, you identify like I did that I I needed to understand gender better and I needed to understand the experience of non-binary and um, transgender people, I set an action plan to that. I gave myself a timeline. I sought out resources and I held myself accountable to that, which is the fourth A. Where um, what we say we're going to do, we actually do it and we hold ourselves accountable. And if we fall short of that, if we don't make a timeline, uh, meet the timeline or the deadline that we had set for that, that we're transparent about that. And we say we fell short of what our goal is, and this is what we're doing to take action. Um, Because I think a lot of what happens in healthcare stops at the awareness level. We provide DEI training, we provide some bias training, we write a nice position statement, or a declaratory statement, we say that we're going to commit to it, like we put up the welcome sign, but then we don't follow through with all the things that have to happen, so that it's not just us saying nice things, but it's actually borne out in the care we provide and the outcomes of our patients. Well, we just have a couple minutes left in this episode. So I'd love to hear your thoughts
0: on where you see the fields of nutrition and dietetics and nursing overlapping with respect to DEI.
1: Well, at, at, at firstly, um, in order to achieve optimal health, people have to be well-nourished, right? And so we have to understand, I think one of the ways we can overlap is to work together um, and we can also help each other with um, biases. A, a, a colleague of mine who I respect very much, um, Dr. igioma Nodum Opara, just recently came up with a model um, that I think is brilliant. It could be used by dietitians, it can be used by radiologists, it can be used by nurses, by physicians. She's a physician and she does a lot of health equity work, and it's a very simple three-step process. Um, The first part is pause to think about how bias could potentially affect the care of the person that you're going to be engaging with, right? And you could do this in rounds, you could do this in huddles, you could do this as an individual person, is to pause and kind of identify what the potential inequities, biases that could happen. Um, And then the next part is critically interrogating, right? Is the care the standard of care? Is this person getting what they need? Um, Is it individualized? Are they engaged in creating the plan with me? And then the the last part is advocacy, right? And so if we identify that something is missing there or that bias has, um, has had an impact on the care, um, that we advocate for that patient and we advocate for each other to make sure that bias does not affect their care. And so, one of the ways we can work together as, in being colleagues is to develop a relationship where we are okay with critically interrogating our care and talking to each other about, um, is this bias? Am I making this decision because there's something unique about this individual or is it because I'm biased or I am utilizing stereotypes I might not even have? Um, Right now, I recently did a study with emergency nurses looking at bias and um, it was a mixed methods that the focus groups include 23 people. Every single nurse said that they either directly experience or observe bias in the emergency department on a daily basis. And every single one of them said that they don't disrupt that bias when it happens directly, that they don't confront it. Instead, they, they try to be a fixer, right? Like, Anna is providing bias care to this person, so I'm just gonna offer to take this, this patient from Anna or I'm gonna to offer to help her um, so that the patient's needs are being met. And so one of the things I, ha- I think we have to do and we have to do in an interdisciplinary way with respect with our colleagues is have conversations and ask things like, hey, you know, I noticed that this person is not getting the standard of care. Is there something unique I should know about this patient? Help people to kind of think about, oh, why aren't they getting the standard of care? And also I think having conversations with each other. You know, if you um, are having a dietary planning and discussion with the patient and you identify things that may be missing or maybe biased in their care, you know, talk, talk to the nurse and, and vice versa. Um, you know, if, you, if I notice as a nurse that my patient's not eating or they're not adhering to a um, nutritional plan, talking to the patient and finding out the reasons why and then communicating with each other. So, you know, I think we have to get really comfortable with interrogating ourselves and, and communicating with each other, right? If you notice things that you share them with me, if I notice things and that we collaborate right across disciplines, we know that improves care um, and we collaborate to support each other in providing unbiased and and, you know, the most optimal care that we can.
0: Well, I think, Those are really helpful sentiments that we will go ahead and conclude today's episode. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share your expertise and chat with us today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to see more interdisciplinary discussions happening around um, racism.
0: And listeners to learn more about DNS efforts to increase awareness and competency of not only our DNS leadership team, but all of our members as it relates to inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, please visit our website at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.